Welcome to Our Data, a podcast about the public's interest in the era of big data. We explore the contours of the public's interest in the landscape of emerging database technologies. Blockchain, AI, big data, and the Internet of Things are pushing the boundaries of our imagination while challenging the ability of policymakers to respond appropriately and effectively. Join us as we talk to leading edge thinkers and doers engaged in the design, development, and regulation of these transformative database technologies with a sharp focus on how they impact the common good. Hi folks, welcome back to Our Data. Uh, Today we have Simon Johnstone. He is joining us from Hong Kong University where he's the executive director of the LLM Compliance and Regulation Program in the Department of Law. Siren has published widely in recognized academic journals and co-authored Financial Markets in Hong Kong Law and Practice. Um, he is regarded as, which is regarded as a cornerstone publication in this field. Uh, his academic works have been referenced in Hong Kong's Legislative Council and the Court of Appeal. He has uh, also been a member of the SFC's FinTech Advisory Group since its formation in 2016, which is, of course, the Hong Kong equivalent of the SEC. We're going to talk about a number of very interesting topics. I'll let Siren jump into it, but just to get it going, Siren, welcome. And uh, Thanks, Mike. Let, let me put it to you: What got you first interested in blockchain, and tell us why? Well, the uh, I think the beginning was really the appearance of ICOs uh, back around 2015. Uh, there'd been some ICOs in Singapore, uh, none in Hong Kong. Uh, and it just started to hit uh, the horizon for the regulators in Hong Kong that we had these offerings which were able to uh, uh, attract tens of millions of, of dollars. So they would raise it in half a day. Right. And it was staggering. Yeah. It was also a time when those, when you look at the white papers uh, on those ICOs, you would see them say things like, this is not subject to any law. Yeah. You know, which is, uh, <laughs> which to, to, to... Caught your attention to say the least, I imagine. Exactly. So we're dealing with something new. And one of the concerns was how that public capital market is being used. Right. Yeah. No, and, and uh, no different here in the US and across the world with those. Tell us, like, so, so you see that you've been practicing and looking at uh, regulatory uh, legal matters, uh, particularly with primary and secondary markets, and, and you decide to dive in. Uh, and then what, what, where have you gone and what, t- take us on a journey. So you go from there to like something um, in the early days. What, is well, it, what does it look like from where you are? Look, I think anybody that starts to dive into blockchain and all things crypto, uh, starts off being incredibly ignorant. And I think uh-huh. that, I think there's a phase that uh, we all go through, though I shall just speak uh, for myself. Oh, there, I'll there, join. I'll there, join. Yes. There, there, there's a phase where you start to think you understand what it is. Uh-huh. And then you go to another phase where you, you've opened another door to a much larger room, and then you understand that you have no idea what this <laughs> is. Um, <clears throat> so one of the things that I started to do was to actually get down to the basics. A a long time ago, uh, before I was a lawyer, I was actually a neuroscientist. Um, Really? Yeah. Uh, And in that that context was kind of interesting because as I started to get into all things fintech, um, 
the one of the things that came back was uh, the whole idea of artificial intelligence and machine learning, uh-huh. and then uh, blockchain came along. So it was this uh, kind of connection of a whole lot of different lines of things that were happening in technology, which enabled a whole lot of new things to happen. Right. But to but let let me go back to an analogy I like to use sometimes with architects and engineers. Uh-huh. I don't think a good architect can build a building without understanding the engineering behind the building. What makes it stay up? Where can I put columns? Where right. can I put escalators that make it all function properly? They need to go back to the to the girders and the you know columns of the building and so on. Not and, just Escher. You can't you need something right, that can work. Well right. exactly. Well yeah. Escher's good because it's <laughs> <laughs> and I, I think there's a lot of eshes in the in the blockchain world because I think there's a there's a huge amount of freedom of thinking about what can be done with uh-huh. these technologies, uh-huh. uh, which I think is really important uh, as a creative process. But when you take that creative process and bring it into the real world, right. things have to much like a building, things have to happen, be functional, and to be safe. Right. So. When I started to get in, into blockchain, I, I'm, you know, my background is I, I'm a lawyer and, and have been in corporate finance, is I actually went back to the programming language. Um, I, uh, some of the research that I've been doing has been uh, funded by the uh, OAX Foundation. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I asked them to do at the beginning was, please introduce me to a developer so I can sit down with them and, and see this process uh, in the keyboard, writing up the, the underlying code. Right. Uh, I understand a little bit of that, um, but not a lot. But what, what that helped me understand was a bit like an engineer leading to how the building is actually ultimately put together. Right. And then ultimately how the building functions in society to bring together right. people to serve certain functions. Uh, a restaurant is different from a conference center. Right. Okay, so they need to be designed differently. So blockchain involves many layers of knowledge. Uh, we've just uh, recently been uh, sitting in a few uh, conference meetings here where we're you know, listening to cryptographers yes. talk about stuff. You know, yes. I'm not a mathematician, yes. but one has to have an appreciation that the tech, this technology is essentially based on two things. One is that there is cryptography that allows uh, people to communicate with each other in a safe environment without actually having to know the identity of the other person. That was something that was first spoken about, I think, Tim May back in uh, uh, 1989. I think he's sometimes regarded as the the father of uh, so-called crypto anarchy. Yes. So uh, cryptography is one, and the consensus mechanism is another. Blockchain is not something that happens with one person. Right. Uh, obviously, we have public blockchain and private blockchain, and these are fundamentally different. But even in a private blockchain, you need to have some mechanism to determine how you can change uh, that immutable record right. in, in the blockchain. It's fundamentally a social process. <clears throat> well, it is. That's right. Um, so. Then coming back to my original interest, because I, as as I'm saying, I'm I'm not a developer, I'm not a mathematician, I'm not an economist. What I am interested, though, is, and and this is going back now to 2016, 2017, when there was really a massive ICO boom, right? And we had, I think, the 
biggest offering at that time was the EOS offering. And I think that raised uh-huh. about $4 billion, yeah. as I recall. It was massive. And at that point in time, regulatory bodies, agencies have to think, well, where is that public capital going? And it right. goes back to very fundamental issues, which uh, in U.S. history goes back to 1929 and the Great Depression, yes. where you basically had fraudsters coming into the market. And if you had a fraudster and an honest business person competing for a limited pool of capital, yeah. it was an unfair uh, uh, yep. process. Right. Hence the Securities Act of 1933, which on one hand protected consumers, Mm -hmm. but on the other hand, it protected the honest business person to give them a fair crack at going into the market saying, look, I've got this great idea to make widgets. Uh, I need the money to build a factory to make it. And that's of some socially beneficial serves a beneficial purpose as compared to the fraudster who's just squirreling Mm -hmm. uh, away the money. So it's about capital efficiency in the market, making sure that capital finds its way to appropriately risk-adjusted investments. Mm -hmm. So there, at that point in time, of course, the regulators, not just regulators, but I would say governments, are concerned about how that money is being raised. There was no uh, very limited disclosure. It was very much uh, um, an insider's market in terms of uh, one needs to rely on white paper information, right. read the white papers that point in time. Yes. You know, for any, any listeners, I, I recommend <laughs> you go back and find some white papers that were written around about 2016 and 2017. Yeah. And if you can understand them, yes. uh, good luck, because most of them are extremely difficult to understand what what it is they're actually trying to do. And and not peer-reviewed papers. These are medium posts and other such things. I mean, these right. are like, so that, yeah. I think a lot of them were medium posts, and then there was also a number that were just sort of generated by AI, right? You could, you, right. there were services you'd go, and it would say, what does a white paper look like? What sort of project are you yeah. doing? Here's something that you can just pop up and you know for your ico i remember really meeting people time, who were yeah. who were writing white papers for other folks right and without no really understanding papers. the content well at that time uh taobao is a uh sort of like a chinese amazon mm-hmm. uh and you could go to taobao and you could uh order a white paper uh i think it would right. take 24 hours it was i can't quite give you the price off the top of my head but 24 hours so they really put some thought into it then. wow <laughs> well again this <laughs> Well, they're pretty smart over there, you know. Um, but, oh, but if you wanted an English version of it as well, then you had to pay a little premium for that. Of course, uh, of course, of course I would imagine then, so. Right. And you can imagine what that would read like having been through a translation, uh, automated translation of some sort. Yeah. Um, who knows? It might come out clearer. Um, <clears throat> so um, what to do about this uh, situation. Um, now, what we're really talking about is is a brand new animal. It was conceived of in the latter part of the you know 1980s, basically, yeah. uh, latter part of the 20th century. And what it only really started, I think, it was 2009 January that the yeah. first Bitcoin was yeah. issued, and that's not a long time ago. And you know, in a very very short period of time. Um, we had something which was originally a very, very kind of geeky, nerdy thing yeah. suddenly tapping into 
billions right. of dollars of right. capital. Um, and it's because of that contact with the public capital market that regulatory agencies like the Securities Exchange Commission or the SFC Securities Futures Commission back in Hong Kong um, launched themselves into action because yes. they felt something needed to be done to protect the market. So yeah. what does a regulatory agency do? They have a set of tools which are given to them by the legislature. Right. Um, those tools limit what they can do. It's kind of like if you're a if you're a woodworker, you don't go and pour cement. Right. Uh, vice versa. So the one of the key tools that the SEC uh, have um, is, uh, or let's say, what defines the ambits of their authority is whether something is a security or not. Correct. And so this is when uh, I'm not going to uh, bore your uh, listeners with this, but basically. The definition of security that we have today actually derives from the How uh, something called uh, the Howey test, which was uh, a uh, court case back in 1946, and it's been modified, uh, developed, and evolved since right. then. But essentially, it is still that 1946 case today yes. that the SEC <clears throat> are applying, and it's the uh, let's say the difficulty of correctly applying that case to some new technological advances that we've got today. And the big, right. quest, the big question uh, in, in my mind is whether that application of securities laws has been successful in dealing with the underlying problem and at the same time allowing the, uh, the, the, the market, the blockchain developers to evolve toward delivering uh, useful benefits to society. Yeah, and that and that case interpreted the 1933 Act. So in some ways, you're talking about we're sitting here in 2020, uh, looking at Securities Act from 1933 in that in that context, and not just the financial context, but the technology context. And so, I to have the flexibility to figure out what happens. You're suggesting new legislation, action. What was where do you see going? And I maybe I'm jumping ahead, but it seems like the 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 Howey test is one of those that um, is ripe, if you will, not to use the oranges in the Howey <laughs> test, but it's ripe for a, a new iteration. Yeah, just going to add to those contexts. I mean, I think all those are accurate, but there's also it was a very different social environment. You know, one of the things that uh, blockchain has has changed is the way we think about something like crowdfunding which was, mm-hmm. you know, just it wasn't even on people's radar right. in the 30s. So there's, there's all these different factors that are coming into play here. And I'm, I'm interested to hear uh, your answer to. Right. The question of information and, and what kind of information, how what both quality and, and you know, access. And that 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 certainly is hugely different. Well, I think the, 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 the two characteristics that strike me is that if you go back uh, to the 40s and one was trying to raise some investment capital, uh, you don't have access into every person's home in America right. uh, and in Europe. Right. Um, you have to, you know, um, sit in your office and people come to you, uh, or uh, go down. I think it was the was it the Orange County Country yep. Club. Yep. Um, you have to go down to the Country Club and uh, get cozied up with the people that have some money and uh, get them on board with your idea. It's a very personal one-to-one kind of yeah. process. Yeah. Uh, and then the investors in that particular scheme. Um, they have something which is not highly liquid. 
They right. need to go, you know, it's not a listed security. They need to go and find somebody to buy it off them. Right. Now, if we fast forward to today, what we've got is incredible tradability and incredible access. So right. for the, uh, if we go back to the ICO era, um, these uh, 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 developers were accessing capital in any part of the world. Um, uh, every single person in developed economies today have an access device in their pocket. Right. Okay. Exactly. So, and, and that's a long way different yeah. from the 40s, right? <laughs> uh, and the second thing is pretty much all of these, um, uh, certainly all cryptocurrencies and a lot of the, um, if I can still use the term utility token, uh -huh. these are very highly tradable. Right. Uh, markets evolve. And again, everybody has a device in their pocket right. Uh, right now where you can go and trade that security. So these two, I've called it a security, right? <laughs> uh, guilty. <laughs> but Walk you, that one back, right. Exactly. Uh, right. So you, you can go and trade it, right? Right. Um, but okay, so my slip of the tongue is kind of interesting maybe to comment on because yeah. I think one of the things that I've been doing some thinking about is, is what policymakers... Uh, think about when they think about policy and right. what they do is they come into policy making with a set of tools that they are accustomed to right. uh, they know how they work they know how to enforce uh, and so um, what what we do as humans is we fall back upon the things that we are most familiar with yeah. so hence it's so easy for me to slip into the word security yes. even though I do so much um, you know, thinking and writing about maybe why we shouldn't be calling these yes. things securities yes. anymore. So, Siren, let's talk about context and dig in a little bit more. 1933 set the stage with securities, in, in the U.S. anyway, with uh, the original Securities Act that tried to wrangle some uh, sense and protection over the markets. We're in 2020, um, and we're looking at new technologies, which are once again, talk, uh, threatening or or creating opportunities to reshape financial markets. Where are we and what, what should we do? Do we need an update? Do we need to revamp? What's your sense of, of where we are? Well, I think at this stage, what we must do is to have a, a more considered attempt at thinking about whether that uh, uh, fundamental taxonomy or set of regulatory silos remain fit for purpose. Um, the whole issue now when you see, uh, say, some recent cases uh, in the United States, there was the Zaslavsky case uh, last year, uh, relatively small, and the guy was probably engaged in some sort of wrongdoing. Um, but now we're looking at the, the Telegram case, which is a very, very large, significant case. And, yeah. um, it's, it's going to be argued hard in that case that, um, that the SEC have not done enough uh, to look at ways uh, that the, what, that kind of taxonomy or regulatory silo that was established in the 30s, right. uh, namely securities, commodities, and exchanges, that we need to move beyond that into something that's more fit for purpose today. Hmm. Um, <clears throat> so what regulators have been doing is basically what I call uh, fit uh, to existing regulatory silos or fitting to existing regulation. Right. Um, and there's not, in my opinion, been enough thinking about how to move past that. I think one of the interesting ways that you can uh, look at this 
is to say, well, look, okay, let's call something a security. Okay, now it's a security. Um, as a, an investor in that security, you now think, okay, so I'm protected by securities laws. Right. And I can do things with this security that I can do with traditional securities like right. stocks and bonds. But, but guess what? You, you can't. Uh. If we look at, say, what's happening in the secondary market, one of the problems that's happening in many places around the world, and I certainly know this is the case in, uh, in the United States and also in uh, Hong Kong, is you've got investors from the traditional markets now wanting to get exposure to digital assets, right. and then they want to go to their traditional broker to help them do that. Right. That's However, where they get their expertise, their advice and counsel. Exactly. However, the regulations, the much more granular regulations about things like accounts and audits rules, you know, to separate client assets from your own assets, things like this, um, these regulations are not currently fit for purpose to enable a broker-dealer to be able to do that. Uh -huh. Even though the thing, the digital asset thing, has been classified by the SEC as a security per the Howey test. Right. So what I think's happened is that we've got to the point where um, regulators have had success in de-risking the market to a certain extent. And that, that's a good thing. So it means that by going after obvious fraud and trying to set some kind of standards, what's the it, a, absolutely right? Uh, I think <laughs> I think um, in the Telegram case, they've been accusing the uh, SEC of simply being an enforcement agency using an enforcement uh -huh. stick. And, and right. I'll come on to something in a moment about enforcement. But um, it's been good because the message that's been clearly written out in the sky by regulators is that don't come to our capital market with some kind of fraudulent scheme because we're going to apply quite rigorous securities laws mm -hmm. to you mm -hmm. uh, to try to weed out uh, those who are trying to raise capital for the wrong purposes. For example, mm -hmm. uh, just by not disclosing uh, what they're actually doing with the money, right. why, why they're raising the money. A very simple thing. Yeah. But my, my fundamental concern is that if we're going to, as a society, get something out of blockchain, which is more than just what we can get with stocks and bonds, yeah. we need to think about whether this basic taxonomy uh, is uh, still fit for purpose. Blockchain offers a lot of opportunity. So let me talk about taxonomy very briefly. Yeah, and, and what what <clears throat> what your what you think the more is that could be out of blockchain that that the potential is because I think that also for the folks listening, it's trying to understand uh, the potential blockchain in the in the context of financial markets. Uh, what the opportunities and what, kind of what, if you have a vision or at least seeing around the corner of what it could be offering folks? I think the, 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 the fundamental axis that we're talking about when you break it down is, is centralization and decentralization. Uh -huh. um, in a decentralized economy, um, what blockchain allows us to do um, is for it, it's 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 a bit like a if you imagine a um, twenty dots on a piece of paper, mm -hmm. and each of those dots rec uh, represents an, an economic unit. It might be a business or it might be an individual. And now, if you connect 
every single one of those 20 dots with every other single 20 dots, that's kind of what, to me, blockchain is. It allows us all to interact very much directly with each other. And th this is why one of the phrases that you'll often uh, hear thrown around is this concept of disintermediation. Mm -hmm. Because it means that we no longer need to go through a trusted third party in order to do something. We can just go straight to the source, which means that we can establish new kinds of commercial interactions between, uh, pardon the phrase, but economic units of society. Right. Um, whereas on a centralized model, which is which is uh, the essence of what we've had in the 20th century with stocks and bonds and companies that issue these kinds of securities, um, is that you you are always going through this trusted intermediary. You're going through uh, the, the the company that issues the securities, but you have no particular interest in the company's business other than what the rights are attaching to those securities. Right. If you want to do uh, 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 banking and finance, if you want to uh, lend money, uh, borrow money, uh, you have to go through uh, your bank. And um, I think, Ruben, you mentioned earlier um, the relationship of this with crowdfunding. Crowdfunding, to me, was sort of like the, the, the version one uh, of, of blockchain in that crowdfunding started to be um, get some traction in different parts of the world. Um, not quite sure when to put a date on it, but let's say post 2010. Yep. Um, and then when ICOs came along, that was initially understood as being uh, a sort of sexier form of doing crowdfunding mm -hmm. until that sexier form became an abused form. Right. And as a result of abuse, regulators came in, they've applied existing silos. Yeah. Uh, and I, it, in my opinion, while they've de-risked the market, yeah. they haven't done enough, that is our uh, legislators and regulatory agencies, haven't done enough to find ways that they can actually promote the development of blockchain. One of the problems for developers is that um, if they have a legitimate business they want to raise the money, that is, they want to raise the money through a digital ecosystem to develop this digital ecosystem. <clears throat> it is not clear to them how they can do it and comply with the law. Right. And I think that conversation is one of the things we've found is the most lacking and the most important um, that between the regulators, uh, the folks who are thinking about policy, and then the folks who are building uh, technologists. And I I think kind of understanding that it needs to be not just two-way but multi-way uh, conversation, and this is this is in some ways being built from from scratch, but it is absolutely real world. So I think what you're talking about um, is something regulators need to understand technology and not just the dangers, but the potentials much better. Uh, maybe they don't have to understand all the formula that goes into you know, a, um, a cryptographic uh, encryption formula. However, they do need to understand the fundamentals at a level where policymaking can be informed. And I think vice versa, the folks who are building need to understand what is both the role and the importance of, of thoughtful regulation. Well, um, I, as I mentioned, de-risking is good. Um, that's stage one. But it's, it's an incomplete part of the uh, response of legislators and regulators if they don't go on to the next stage of saying, okay, fine, we've, we've imposed some de-risking in a particular market. And mind you, it's not 
total de-risking because yep. what happens is that the issuers who might want to engage in fraud in this jurisdiction simply go to another jurisdiction. Uh, as I was mentioning before, this thing about um, uh, access to everybody's pocket device, yep. that's, that's international, okay? Yeah. Um, one of the things that I think hasn't received enough attention is, is if you look at the changed assumptions mm. in terms of what that um, securities, commodities, exchange, taxonomy uh, established and what they're actually trying to uh, achieve. So mm -hmm. just a couple of um, changed assumptions, for example, um, that the actor is centralized. Right. Okay. Think about a stock exchange. No. Um, we, NASDAQ, it's, it's uh, NASDAQ's no. a great story, actually, because NASDAQ was not originally centralized. It was an electronic communications network that was effectively decentralized. The, uh -huh. the brokers would simply trade with each other. Uh -huh. And the way that they were regulated was because they were dealing in securities, it meant that at that time, uh, uh, the NASD at that time, yeah. uh, was able to grab a hold of the individuals and regulate them that way. But the network itself right. kind of was only derivatively regulated. So over time, uh, NASDAQ ceased to be this electronic communications network and sort of moved into its current centralized uh, format. Um, now you have the possibility of decentralized exchanges where anybody can join onto a common protocol and transact with another person, in the words of Tim May, without knowing who they are, but with absolute certainty that they're not going to trade away uh, their assets without receiving the asset back. However, under the current uh, policymakers' uh, uh, frame of mind is, and I, I've heard regulators say this literally, they say, quotes, decentralized exchanges are not regulatable. You know, and I fundamentally disagree with right. this. Uh, the uh, paper that's coming out in June uh -huh. in the Stanford uh, Journal Blockchain Law and Policy yes. actually breaks down the functions of centralized and decentralized exchanges. And you can see mapped against each other, yeah. the fundamental functions are the same. Yeah. A significant difference is that decentralized functions don't have the same risk as, as counterparty risk, okay? yes. which in centralized exchanges we had to introduce these uh, central clearing parties to solve that kind of problem. So, the, okay, assumption number one, actor is locatable, not necessarily now. Um, exchanges may be dematerialized. Um, uh, next is that imposing regulation is going to de-risk a market, not necessarily. I've right. already touched upon that right. uh, point. That enforcement regulation will work. One of the things that I've been um, also doing a bit of thinking about is that how well, okay, look, if you've got a bad actor where you can locate that actor, it's a centralized activity, and you've got a baseball bat in your hand, you can right. go and find them right. and you can discipline them. Yep. But if you're talking about actors who are now decentralized, which don't have a clear geographic location, how well is enforcement regulation actually going to work? Um, you simply go somewhere else or, and this is the other thing that's so interesting about blockchain and what the, the cryptography allows, is you just go dark. You become absolutely 
unlocatable, uh-huh. but you can still carry on with exactly what you were doing before. Which is the fundamental concern of you know a DOJ enforcement absolutely um, approach, and I think that's where it gets down to this question: it's not the centralized versus decentralized, but the ability to find an actor, as you said. Well, uh, and as- and be whether it's like down the road where with a warrant or however the mechanism that there isn't uh, with certainty you can get to the actual person where you can or the entity uh, where you can uh, find some recourse absolutely we've we've both taught law students at various points in time and uh, you know one of the things that, that I always teach my students is to say well look if you're thinking about some new law or regulation in place um, you have to think about uh, how you can enforce it and how enforceable is it? Will yeah. the market actually react to it in a way or are you going to have to go around and enforce you know, every single Tom, Dick and Harry because nobody, nobody right. likes it? Right. So what I've kind of been trying to focus on and I've written a bit about it uh, is um, the concept of attraction regulation. Okay? Interesting. Now the thing with attraction regulation is the idea that you... Uh, create a, um, a, a landscape or a field or an environment uh, which makes it desirable for good actors to come to. So right. uh, we yep. talk about the, uh, the digital asset um, market now in the billions, but mm-hmm. you, you know what? That market is still tiny it is. compared to the trillions yes. in the in the sort of uh, yes. the traditional markets. So if you're now a, a crypto exchange uh, and you know some of these crypto exchanges have uh, staggering daily turnovers, yeah. but they're turnovers of that relatively small market, wouldn't it be great if you could devise a system where it said, look, come into the light, come over here, yeah. be subject to some kind of yeah. uh, regulatory oversight yeah. um, that will encourage the exchange to come on board that will provide some better level of protection for persons who are using that exchange. Mm -hmm. Uh, Ruben looks like he's got something on his mind to... (laughs) Yeah. Well, I I think the way you're presenting this is really interesting just over the last couple of minutes. It it almost started, in my mind, I was picturing it almost as kind of like an, an evolutionary arms race, right? And that's how that's a good way, maybe not the only way, but it's a good way for legislation to evolve. All right? There's something that, uh, that is sort of an anticipated problem, and then there are people that act within the sphere of existing regulation. The regulation makes an incremental change, and it, it moves like that. Um, it seems like that is not the case here. Uh, blockchain sort of snuck up on everybody. It got applied uh, in really surprising ways to the security space. And so now hearing you, you talk about the role of regulation, one of the things that is very striking to me is that um, I'm, I'm, if I'm interpreting what you're saying properly, uh, you're presenting it as uh, the regulators are in sort of a stationary position and they have an obligation to uh, either change the way that they're regulating or in some way advance their, uh, advance their regulatory agenda. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's a two-part question, which is, where are the friction points given where where blockchain is today? And then sort of the more philosophical question is to what extent do we have a to what extent uh, do we as a community have the obligation to um, meet the regulators halfway? Right. Rather than them staying right. stationary and, and saying like, you know, well, we're going to do this thing. Good luck regulating. 
Right. Um, are there things that the blockchain community can do to say will help will help kind of advance this evolutionary arms race? Right. Um, for if you go back uh, a few years, uh, the common complaint about regulators was that they don't really understand the technology, they don't understand what blockchain is, they yeah. don't understand the possibilities offered, yeah. uh, and so on. Um, which makes it really the, tough to regulate. Which makes it tough to regulate yeah. if you don't know what you're talking about. Um, but that statement is not true today. Not um, at all. It's true. You're you know, right. It, the, the, I think the, the, the SEC was a two years ago or three years ago, set up a particular division yep. just to deal yeah. with this. Yep. Um, you know, they take an... It, incoming calls from anywhere on all subjects and they answered real time in a really sophisticated manner. Yeah. FinHub division for anybody that wants yeah. to go look that up. Right. So um, so individually regulators have uh, the, uh, let's say, the mental uh, equipment yes. to, to deal yes. with this. But um, the uh, remember that we're dealing with a statutory body. Right. That it's been created and it has an ambit of authority and it has tools that it's been given and tools that it has not been given. And so at the moment, all they can really do is to um, is really use the enforcement tools by saying, pointing at stuff and saying, oh, that's the security. Now we can enforce something. Now enforcement Because becomes, to be more flexible would require a change of legislation. Ah, uh, that's correct, yes. Yeah. Um, so, or, or new or new case law. Okay. okay. Yep. Remember that right. the right. you know yeah. that the, the definition of security, uh, at least in the U.S., has not been static. Um, you know, Howie, which is now the the, the, the guiding piece of um, law on on the definition of security, is is not that laundry list definition of security in the Securities Act. It's the investment contract phrase, which was yes. which was interpreted. Yes. When you go through later Supreme Court cases, I think in the eighties and the nineties, you'll see the Supreme Court arguing about how to deal with the definition of security, this laundry list approach or the uh, or the uh, so-called functional approach. Uh -huh. um, and I think that it, it is quite possible that um, we will have developments in case law with, which might help out in, mm -hmm. in this mm -hmm. regard. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, um, courts themselves are interpreting existing statutes. Right. And, and, you know, my point is that um, maybe we need to look at uh, something uh, beyond uh, that. Right. It gives the opportunity for some uh, much larger or more thought through uh, forward thinking uh, policy making. Right. Now, what, one of the, what I was just saying a moment ago that the, if you go back a few years, the uh, regulators didn't understand. If you look at them now, they understand. Unfortunately, I cannot say the same for the other part of the equation, oh. and that's the crypto community. Oh. Right. Now, there's, there's a, <laughs> It, it, it goes without saying, there's a lot of highly intelligent people right. who are engaged in um, in developing thinking about blockchain and what it can do. Yep. Um, but I, I'd have to say that I, in general, I don't think they have actually done the reciprocated with the regulators' efforts. Uh -huh. That is to understand what is it that uh, the regulators' policy concerns are. It's got to be a two-way communication. For the last few years um, when in, in Asia, when I've been talking at panels, this is one of the messages I, I keep yeah. pounding home is that, look, regulators are trying to understand you guys. Guess what? You guys need to understand the regulators because the regulators have a role in society that you can't just ignore. 
Um, and so I think that's, you know, I think I, I think an important message for anyone who's listening to this podcast, who's involved on the technology side of this equation is, you know, to, to go and put yourself in the shoes of the regulators and try to understand what it is that they're looking for. And one of the things that we've already spoken about is that they're looking to protect the public capital market. That's so essential to do. In terms of what kind of regulator should regulate, um, blockchain's not just about the public capital market. Right. You know, it's about the benefits that can be brought. If you go back to uh, 2018, the uh, European Parliament um, passed a resolution on the potential benefits of uh, distributed ledger technology, um, or, or DLT. And they had a long list of stuff that DLT can help with. Yeah, right. um, and, and I think that's worth rem reminding ourselves that one part of the equation for blockchain development is getting the capital together to be able to do the development. But that's not the only thing that blockchain is about. Yeah. If we only think of it in that way, it's just basically a, 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 a trader's game. What uh, we're it, trying to do is to build an ecosystem um, so you have multiple uh, blockchain developments which are able to speak to each other, which are able to interact with different parts of human society. Yeah. That's not necessarily then interacting with the public capital market, yeah. but the public capital market is necessary to be able to access to get to that next stage of ecosystem development. Yeah, it seems to me that that with the ICO boom, if you will, that, that period, so much, and like a lot of things, so much of the attention followed the money, and so much of the discussion is focused around that, which is now the, the exchanges and just how to access capital markets or not. And to your point, there's a lot, there are a lot of projects and a lot of folks who are looking at the broader implications and applications, but I've found it to be the case that there's a lot less sustained attention on those projects and those applications and i you know in some ways this is it's once again uh, like so many things um the attention is based on well it, it it comes down to money too much of the time so i think there are a lot of you know tremendously not just uh important but you know the they're game-changing technology applications that are not being fully uh, explored or deployed and I think we need to figure out how to take advantage of those things and part of it is is investment and part of it is uh, creating regulatory opportunities and I think that's that's where the role of government and I think for technologists who are looking beyond just how to get the next decks um, up I think that's where a lot more focus has to be well, I'd like to give you one example where I think that the way that we've applied regulation at the moment has been not helpful um, to generate those kinds of uh, the, the wider focus that right. you've yeah, yeah. you've just referred to, um, and that is the whole shift that we've had from ICOs to STOs. Yes. Right. So an initial coin offering. These things were called utility tokens. They allow you to do stuff. There was. Um, you know, pizza coin allows you to, you know, yes. spend it and then the pizza appears at your door. Um, but these things stopped because of the application of securities laws, which now meant that um, people wanting to raise money had to instead structure that token offering as a security. 
one of the things that were happening at the same time is that as investors from the traditional market were getting interested in the possibilities, they would want, for example, a legal opinion. Yes. Right now, it's quite difficult. I think it was uh, it's probably around 2017, early 2018. Uh, U.S. law firms just uh, pretty much across the board said we're not issuing any more legal opinions that this is not a security. Um, that shifted the entire market to saying, well, if we want to raise money um, within a securities law context, we need to comply with things like Regulation D and private yeah, placement right. offerings. We need to get a legal opinion. They can't give us an opinion that it's not a security. So, hey, you know what? We're going to get an opinion that it is a security. And so now we're going to um, offer these things not to the great unwashed public, yes. but we're going to offer them to uh, basically high net worth individuals, yes. sophisticated yes. investors, and and uh, so on. So that means that ICOs have um, have have lost the limelight, and we've all gone down this securities token offering yeah. route. Yeah. And now I kind of think that's a that's a bit of a shame and a bit of an example where because we've we've constrained these exercises within the context of securities laws, it means these other ideas which might have built interesting parts of an, a, a much more, let's say, uh, broader spectrum ecosystem mm -hmm. have not been able to develop because we've all been squeezed in the shape into the shape of 20th century securities law. It's like dire straits, telegraph road, bring in the lawyers, and then that was the, that's what you're, bad joke, but. Oh, I missed that one. No, sorry. <laughs> well, so so tell us where you think that, um, uh, given that, uh, how do you think we can, uh, before things get too solidified, before things get set in concrete, how can we create that the opportunity. I mean, uh, Singapore is looking at um, creating a sandbox approach. Uh, there are calls for, you know, um, there, there are different approaches to try to allow for it, whether it's a time uh, limited or size of, of the company to be able to allow for some uh, innovation in that context. What, wh or is that just tinkering? What do you think fundamentally where where we should start looking because frankly I, I do think that regulators are engaged and they're looking at larger things central banks are looking at at coins uh, for uh, national digital currency uh, there's there is a lot more serious thought going in uh, across the board you know across the world and I think this is the time to kind of interject some of that thinking hopefully that will be taken up Right, and that includes the United States. Um, at this point, it's it's relatively new. I don't know if you've had a chance to look into uh, Commission, Commissioner Purse's uh, safe harbor proposal, but if you have any thoughts on that as well, uh, that would that'd be really interesting. Sure. Well, I think what's been happening to date is um, what uh, I call uh, regulatory incrementalism. Yes. Um, that is, we, we keep using the tools that we've got and applying them as best we can uh, until such time, and I think we're at the cusp of that time now is that we have to really ask um, how uh, sustainable is that? Um, thinking about a number of the things we've spoken about uh, uh, today, um, you know, such as the ability to actually successfully de-risk or is, it, is there any way that this is promoting um, mm -hmm. the right. uh, development? Um, as uh, Thomas Kuhn uh, wrote uh, an interesting book, the can't remember the title, but you know the 
paradigm shifts and scientific structure revolution. Structure of scientific revolution. Structure of scientific, yeah. thanks, Ruben. Yeah, structure of scientific revolutions. And, you know, in, in some ways, what we're looking at here is, and this is something that I'm writing about currently, mm-hmm. is that maybe we're looking at something similar to that, where, as, as I mentioned before, we've got fundamental assumptions about the way that securities law works that just don't apply anymore. Maybe we need to say, hey, look, this is some kind of paradigm shift which requires uh, policymakers to start thinking entirely differently about how uh, we start to um, allow blockchain ecosystems development. Because this is not just about blockchain per se. This is about actually allowing a much more nuanced ecosystem to evolve where you, as I mentioned before, where you have different blockchain rails being able to communicate with each other. Now, uh, Hester Pierce, um, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, Hester Pierce, my my perception of her from from a a non-US perspective um, is that she shakes up the apple cart. You know, let's rattle it somehow. I think the inspiration point sometimes is very nice, but when you look into the details or implementation or how do we do that, um, it doesn't hold together. So the one that she mentioned uh, well, a couple of weeks ago, what would that be? That would be um, mid-February. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, regarding creating a sandbox. That that to me, it's it's not that's not a fully thought out idea. Number one. Mm-hmm. Um, and number two, it's still, more like a signal to the market. It, well, it's a signal to the. I think it's almost a signal to the SEC and to the uh-huh. the, the commissioners and and hopefully to the policymakers above them um, that we have to do something to uh, change um, what we're doing at the moment. I mean, one of the problems with that sandbox is step one is the sandbox kind of assumes that something's got to be a security in order to get the exemption from some That's securities right. laws. So. so <laughs> So right there, this is an example of uh, something I was mentioning previously, and that is that policymakers tend to think about things with an existing toolkit. And what we need to do is we need to look at ways of changing that toolkit. And I think one of the best ways of helping them to change that toolkit is actually to get more people in the crypto community understanding what regulatory policy making and policy concerns are all about so that they can have a much more active uh, input. I'm a believer, and, and yeah. again, this is something I've written about in, in, in another paper, um, that regulation should not be introduced too early because it simply uh-huh. risks um, cramping the ability of the private market to come up with its own public policy mm-hmm. solutions. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that was, um, again, that's another uh, mm-hmm. plug for the Stanford uh, Journal on Blockchain Law and <laughs> Policy. I think that was in January uh, 2019. Um, uh, I, a paper of mine came out on that. But um, but the point is to allow yeah. the private market. You need to allow uh, enough width to the frame lines that the um, the public, uh, sorry, the private market can understand what regulators are looking for, can understand what regulators are wishing to avoid, Mm -hmm. and start finding their own solutions. One of the things that's a big topic um, at the moment, which is an interesting one to think about, is uh, interoperability. All right. This is, is, um, at the moment, it's a a technical issue. 
um, which the technologists are trying to right. figure out how to right. solve. Um, if we look at it from how, let's say, a European regulator might think about it, which I'm not a big fan of, they like to regulate from a top-down bureaucratic approach where they say, okay, well, we can see that there's an issue there for the industry to develop. This is the protocol that you are going to have to follow uh -huh. to, to get some advantage. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Um, that works in a European context. It's uh, uh, <laughs> One might say it's very sort of un-American, um, and so it, that's not going to work here. I don't like that European context because it forces the market into a presumption that the policymakers know better than the market. And I think that this is, my personal view is that this is not the best way to react to a novel situation right. where we are all trying to understand that the technologists. It's are even it, right. It's how developed, how mature is the market? Yeah. If you're looking at a particular thing that's the market's existed for, you know, decades, that you're talking about, you know, all the, not just the broad brushstrokes, but the nuances are understood. Um, uh, and it's fair to say that the regular regulators can come in and and offer advice that makes sense in that context. But this is, you know. This is not just new technology. This is new ways of thinking of organizing society. Absolutely, yes. Yeah, no, I, I, it, makes, it makes a great deal of sense. You were sharing with us offline um, this brilliant um, uh, example for, and I'm, I'm just queuing you up to talk about the example that you had from Lincoln oh, to right. try to get folks to think about how to think about this problem. And I think this applies both to regulators, but also to uh, technologists. And I think particularly technologists who, and there are a lot of folks that now realize you have to deal with uh, regulators, that you can't, uh, just because it's online and they you don't think they understand your source code doesn't mean they actually are not paying attention. So you need to engage. But tell us, share the example and, and it's really oh, well, here. Yeah. yeah, sure. Well, uh, Lincoln was credited with um, saying that just because you call a tail a leg, it does not mean that a dog has five legs, right? And, uh, you know, obviously the, the point that he's making in, in his time and context, which is still very much applicable today, is you have to look at how the real world is, yes. uh, not at how you are applying a, a labeling label to something. And a, and a completely different set of projects that I'm working on at the moment is um, ESG, Environmental and Social Governance. Oh, you know, wow. We're going to have to uh, have a follow-up on that. Oh, great. I'd love to. Um, the um, But with ESG, you've got all this greenwashing. Um, yes. You know, you have large institutions yes. uh, marching around saying we're doing environmental uh, in investing yep. and they, they find some very specific metric on which they're calling it environmental which out, without looking at the whole mm -hmm. larger picture, mm -hmm. right? Um, so the tail, leg, four legs, five legs, you know, I've asked various people what their answer to this question um, is and it's kind of interesting the answers that I get. Some people will tell me, oh, well, if you call a tail a leg, uh, then uh, the dog, of course, it has five legs. Right. Um, if a dog only has four legs, so it's only four legs. It's just a, it's just a, a naming game. Uh, I had one person who told me that, uh, well, if, if you do that, then a dog has only one leg. Um, That's a coder. I'm sorry, yeah, right. That was a coder. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but, you know, I think that the, the other way of looking at the uh, Abraham Lincoln quote is to say, well, you know, semantically, uh, he is indeed right. Is that if you, uh, sorry, he's wrong, um, in that if you decide that 
a tail is equivalent to a leg, then it does indeed have five legs. And what we need to ask ourselves, and I think this is why we're talking about Abraham Lincoln's yes. um, quip, is that um, we need to ask ourselves, what is the value of naming and categorizing yes, things? Yes. What are we trying to achieve? And this takes us back to the taxonomy conversation again, is every taxonomy relies on certain assumptions mm -hmm. and it is engaged for some particular purpose. Um, there is no point taking taxonomy A, which is designed for purpose A, and saying, oh, let's now see if we can use that taxonomy over here for group B for purpose B, because the uh, fundamental assumptions are different. And this is the concern, just to uh, cycle back, uh, is that the, um, the underlying assumptions um, which gave rise to the taxonomies that we are dealing with, uh, with securities, commodities, and exchange regulation, those underlying assumptions have changed so fundamentally, mm -hmm. then I think we need to have a new kind of taxonomy uh, to try to tackle um, how to group and categorize with what purpose uh, the things that are happening in the blockchain space. So you're calling for a conversation uh, that starts with a conversation about uh, where we are, not the specific rules or applications, but, but uh, having a common uh, assessment of where the world is and what this thing is trying to achieve between you know, kind of a baseline conversation between policymakers and technologists. Well, I think we can ask a question whether securities regulation and commodities regulation, for that matter, too, because, of course, the CFTC mm -hmm. uh, also, right. also regulate cryptocurrencies. But um, we need to be able to ask the question, is this system still fit for purpose? Yeah. Uh, and if it's not, what might a different system uh, begin to uh, look like? I think we have to ask that. I know that in Europe there... Um, it's a very current issue at the moment, is the debate about whether they need to establish a different kind of regulator. Uh -huh. uh, going back to that 2018 resolution I mentioned, yeah. you know, that's the birthplace of this conversation that says, well, hey, if all of these potential benefits uh, can be derived from this new technology, it just doesn't make sense for a securities or commodities regulator to be uh, in charge of that. Um, let me give you a you know, uh, completely, uh, again, it's just stepping sideways for, for an example. Yeah. And it's something that is um, in a lot of people's minds in a lot of parts of the world these days, yeah. and that's the coronavirus. Ah, uh, yes. Okay. So um, I wrote a, a quite a brief article um, at the start of February um, in relation to the way that blockchain and uh, AI could have actually changed the coronavirus situation quite a lot. Um as we know, one of the problems um, for the spread of the coronavirus uh, globally was the way that it was managed uh, in the Hubei province, in particular in Wuhan. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a whole lot of cultural and centralized kinds of problems there in terms of the way the problem was managed. But um, the focus of my particular article was on the way that charities were reacting. There was a the, um, there was a direction that all of the donations needed to go to the Red Cross. Okay, mm -hmm. so fine. Red Cross, in a fairly short period of time, raised something in the order of 4 billion yuan. Mm -hmm. uh, and they received lots of protective gear and masks from all over the world. Uh, you can't buy masks anywhere in San Francisco yeah, no, now, right? You know? um, 
they've all been sucked into there. But you know what the bizarre thing is? While the uh, virus was still in, let's say, an earlier stage of spreading, the Red Cross was sitting on a massive amount of money and a massive amount of protective gear, and it was just aggregating there. Uh -huh. It wasn't being released out. Uh -huh. And part of the problem seems to have been that they had no adequate system which in any uh, you know, any medium-sized company, but if we look at the larger logistics companies, yeah. um, SF Express is a very large company in, in China, um, FedEx and so on, you know, they have systems which will strictly monitor what comes in, where it's been to, and where it needs to go to. And yep. a lot of that is automated. There's a lot of machine learning involved in figuring out how do I use my resources best. The Red Cross were um, uh, seemed to be unclear about how much protective gear they had. Uh -huh. um, they were uncertain about where it should be deployed. Uh -huh. uh, and so, result, they do nothing. Right. Now, if what my article was about is if yeah. you take a blockchain and AI system and put it on top of that, um, you would have a real-time understanding not only of how much, for example, masks and protective gear you have now, but you would also be able to predict, well, I will be expecting to get this much next week, which means I can release this out uh, soon. Um, you would have a system which enabled you to make better judgments about things like, well, if I have a limited supply of masks today, and I know I'm getting some tomorrow, is it better for me to send the masks to where the infection is already pretty bad? Or should I send it to the place where the infection is actually not really bad and, and, and stop it there? That, yeah. That's my damning spot. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Sorry, sorry for the people in the infection spot, but you're not going to get it because you know, your, your, your uh, milk has already been spilt. Yeah. Um, so if you take this kind of technology and, and, and start working blockchain and AI together in this way, you would yeah. have very, very different, much more effective uh, responses. Yeah. And what I gather now is um, since uh, the coronavirus has um, the whole incident, uh, blockchain development has been... Uh, extremely active in China without using public capital. Um, but what's now happening is that the coronavirus has kind of reminded people that, you know what, we should be using this in all other elements yeah. of society yeah. just to make things more efficient yeah. and, importantly, more transparent. Yes. This is one of the fundamental problems that was happening yes. with the coronavirus issue. That's brilliant. Uh, Siren, fantastic. That, and and what a way to bring it full circle and you know really once again point to the all the things that we have yet to really tackle I th this has been an amazing conversation uh, thanks so much for taking the time and we're actually looking to move forward and have follow-on conversations with you um, about a number of the things we talked about in that but we also do want to remind folks that we're going to be um, having a, a symposium in April is associated with future law, which we'll, we'll have an opportunity both to live stream from that April 6th. Um, from, uh, you can go to the Codex website and look for details, but also coming out of that, uh, continuing this conversation and others. Uh, it's been amazing. Ruben, I mean, like once again, we were able to sit in and hear from some of the most interesting folks out there in the space. Uh, Siren, we look forward to the next thing. I look forward to, Mike. I much enjoyed having the conversation. And, um, you know, as I said at the beginning, 
one of the draw points of this particular uh, topic is that there is no limit to the depth and yep. the breadth at which one can talk about it. But uh, yeah, thanks very much for the invitation and uh, look forward to next time. All right. Thanks, Siren. Thank you. Sure. This is phenomenal. Thanks. All right. Thanks for listening. We'd love to hear from you, get your thoughts and feedback about the issues raised in the podcast and your ideas on where we should go next. Our Data is a podcast brought to you by the Blockchain Group and the Tech for Good project of Stanford's Codex Center for Legal Informatics. Thanks to the co-chairs of the Codex Blockchain Group, Tony Lai and Kushagra Srivastava, and Codex Executive Director, Roland Vogel. And special thanks to our producer, co-host, and jack of every trade, Ruben Youngbaum. I'm Michael Schmitz.